Hello and welcome to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast that explores radical politics, medical anthropology and the sociology of science. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Sophie Lewis about how the family shapes care under capitalism. If you'd like to support Red Medicine, please subscribe and consider giving the podcast a positive review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Sophie Lewis is a freelance writer living in Philadelphia and the author of two books, Full Surrogacy Now and Abolish the Family, both published by Verso Books. Her essays have appeared in the New York Times, Harper's, N Plus One, the London Review of Books and Salvage. And in this conversation, we discuss what role the family plays in creating the conditions for capitalism to exist, what it means to start thinking about abolishing the family, and what the implications of this might be for how we think about care and health. I I think the place I wanted to start with is by asking you about the claim of the death of the family and how, you know in the book you write that it's been greatly exaggerated and I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about why you think that is and why why that perceived death of the family is you feel greater than the, the reality. Yeah it's such an interesting characteristic of the family as a ideological material juridical technology for organizing social reproduction that it has never not been in crisis or considered to be in crisis (laughs) Uh, that's kind of the opening claim Melinda Cooper makes in her book um, Family Values which is an inquiry into both neoconservative and neoliberal forms of political economy and governance and the centrality of family to both. It's a very elegant book and uh, it's it's opening claim, as I say, is this, is this kind of, you know, yeah, this much, you know, exaggerated sort of death of the family thesis. You know, the family's not nearly dead enough, but the way it exerts its discipline on the world is in part via this fear that it is under attack, that it is, um, you know, melting away, that it is eroding, that young people, you know, kids these days are not um, signing up to it in sufficient numbers or with sufficient ardour. Yeah, um, so I guess, let me see, your question was... Yeah, so I guess one... perhaps knee-jerk reaction to hearing calls for sort of family abolitionism might be that, yeah. well, actually my family doesn't really, you know, as you point out in the book, well, my, my family's not like that anyway. Or I remember yeah. when I first got a copy of your book, I, I texted a friend about it and his response was, um, do you mean the nuclear family or all families? And I was like, well, I haven't quite got to that bit yet. But what, what do you say to that kind of mm-hmm. initial response of, oh, yeah, yeah that- is the family still here anyway kind of thing? Yeah, okay, this is exactly um, the the most complicated bit, and it's really important. Um, do you, you know, people tend to say exactly as your friend did, you know, um, hang on, um, you know, my family isn't like that, very few families are. This is actually completely correct, right? The, the, the miraculous cunning of the family, um, which, let me just go ahead and define it, right? The family, and it's not just me who defines it this way, it's the form that the privatization of care takes in a class society. So that's not just capitalism. That's also, let's say, feudalism before it. Although I'm interested, and I think it's a valid incision to make, you know, to be concentrated on the capitalist family in the same way that one might be setting out to write a book about gender and really, you know, one is talking about capitalist gender recognizing that there were antecedents and 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 so on and that there are pre-capitalist forms you know of gender and so on but so I'm talking about the capitalist family and yes a lot of people feel um that maybe their family isn't really capitalist right because oh you know it's it's sort of well it's not nuclear 
Um, its members are not part of the bourgeoisie. It's, uh, you know, maybe queer, blended, hybrid, ad hoc, non-white, you know, <laughs> undocumented, what have you. Maybe unhoused, you know. But okay, unhoused is maybe the the limit point. Uh, I would say that there is a, I think, a, a, a sense in which when you start talking about uh, an outside to, you know, the private household as a space, maybe 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 we we need to to get more specific. But let's say okay, let's say the the majority of the things I just listed do they in fact invalidate a comprehensive analysis about the family? You know, is, is that does it? Does it problematize claims about the family as part of a capitalist totality? I try and address this face on in the book. I, I argue, no, if we define the family, and I think it is important to do so, as the, the form that the privatization of care takes in a class society, specifically the one we're in, capitalism, it doesn't actually make sense to exclude all the actually existing forms of family that fall within that and, you know, to some extent, to different extents, in fact, orient uh, and contain elements of an orientation that go elsewhere, <laughs> that, go, that, go, that point in a liberatory direction. Of course, you know, uh, I, I, I would go so far as to say that maybe all social reproduction, all, all of the work we do to make one another as human beings, may, maybe not literally all of it, maybe there are sort of fascists, in, in you know who are managing somehow to reproduce one another in purely sort of anti-liberatory ways p- trying to produce perfect workers with no I don't know that's just a hypothetical but like basically all of the work we do to to remake one another and some of it we don't experience as work because it feels unalienated because it feels satisfying you know all of it has a dimension that is connected to the needs of the market the needs of bosses um, and the needs of the state. The, the 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 magical thing about the family as a material, ideological, juridical technology is that it works even though a huge number of us fall outside of it, right? It, in a paradoxical way, maybe there aren't hardly really that many people who live in this ideal image or something approximating it. In fact, as I tried to argue in my first book, um, Full Surrogacy Now, that the image of the private nuclear household and the family that it houses is almost contradictory in and of itself, in a very sort of pure philosophical sense, because it is an image of, you know, autonomous coherence and wholeness uh, of, of a sort of autonomous organism, which in fact is only able to exist because of the way it cuts out all of these shadowy figures that are in fact producing it from the family photo, right? The surrogates, uh, in a sense, the surrogates who who make who are always present. Uh, these sort of paradoxical figures who are, as sur- surrogation means, in the place of the proper body, and they and they have to be there. <laughs> They're the constitutive outside, if you like, to the family. So. You know, perhaps we could go so far as to say that the family is always actually a fiction. Um, and, and so what? The, the problem is, it you know, even those of us who are dispossessed from private nuclear households into which we were born, those of us who are refugees from the private nuclear household or the family for reasons of, you know, for example, domestic violence and battery or queer phobia, transphobia, right? There's a huge number of dispossessed uh, homeless queer youth in this world. Even even so, right? Those of us who fall in the optimistic account of the gay liberation front in the early seventies, you know, outside of the family, right? This was a sort of optimistic account. We are already outside of the family as gays, right? <laughs> I, I I I really query that actually. We are we are disciplined by it because, and this is I think the fundamental thing. I hope to get across maybe <laughs> it's it's that the family is a technology of work right we cannot fall fall outside um, of the aspiration towards family because as I propose in abolish the family the family is the reason we are supposed to go to work the reason we want to go to work and also the reason you know we can go to work uh, in the sense that 
you know, we need to be sort of reproduced uh, somehow <laughs> uh, in order to be able to go back to work. So I think work is is maybe almost the, the main thing we should be talking about in terms of how the family works as uh, an ideological seduction uh, of us all. And the, the cunning thing is that it naturalizes work so much. We think that it is beautiful um, that we as human beings sacrifice our entire lives for the sake of family by laying down decades of our lives in, in alienated work, whether that's waged or unwaged actually. Um, and that sacrifice, yeah. which demands too much of too few people is actually, it becomes the model we have for love in, in Toto, right? And, and, and it, it's work that kind of drives all of this um, it's work that, you know, rationalizes it. And, and it is work that is also the telos of the family, right? Ultimately, that's what, in, in a sense, the family is there to, uh, to, to you know, service. Um, it, it provides fresh workers, right? That's a very, you know, people hate such economistic, quote unquote, you know, economistic, <laughs> like, accounts of something that feels mm -hmm. voluntary, joyful and in fact a haven right a haven in a heartless world but to quote a very you know maybe overquoted uh line from the wages for housework tradition from the early 70s which was a anti-work autonomous marxist tradition uh that they say you know we want to call work what is work in order to be able to discover what those activities and relations that most satisfy our desires might be uh, liberated from that little element that steals it, right? That steals even the best things in our life partially, insidiously away and uh, for, uh, by, by directing it towards the needs, the, the benefits, the profits of, of, of the state and, and market. So it's not that my, you know, my care for my, my teaching of language to a child, my cooking, my soothing my joking all of that stuff that it's not in fact maybe some of the best uh of life mm. that there is right in fact yeah. I, I probably yeah i probably think that is <laughs> you know some of the best things yeah. that we have as humans going on that in fact it is precisely because those things most satisfy our desires many of us that that we should be so enraged about the fact that part of it is being stolen from under our noses and directed towards quite anti-human ends. And so the, the age-old tradition of family abolitionism, uh, or what Alexandra Kollontai calls the sort of struggle for a red love, is actually, it's a very utopian, very sort of um, humanist hope that those things that we know might be uplifted and uh, liberated um, such that we could be together in deeper ways than we, we we ever have before or that have ever been you know historically possible before um so that so that they can be even better they can be even freer because not blackmailed into the organized forms of scarcity that we've sort of shunted them into by capitulating to the somewhat perverse uh logic <laughs> of, of, of capitalist reproduction I mean, you've already started to do it, but maybe more explicitly, just kind of define social reproduction for people. Because I, I know some people who listen to this will definitely know what that means. Some may have heard it and not 100%. And then there may be others that have never heard that term before. But it's it's quite central to the argument you're making. Could you outline that for people that might not be as familiar with it? Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so uh, there is in Marxism... Um, a, and, and I'm going to be possibly a little reductive, <laughs> oversimplifying here, yeah, but there's, course, a, there's yeah. a signature, a signature move, right, that happens where Marx asks you, the reader, asks us to look behind a certain sort of curtain, <laughs> like a certain kind of veil over the world of commodities, you know, the world of the market and the society that comes along with it and to to go with him and look inside what he calls the hidden abode of production and he's like look at this it's the hidden abode look what's going on behind the <laughs> veneer of uh, of this natural free 
exchange between a laborer selling their labor power and this boss who is giving who's who's freely you know choosing to give this laborer money in exchange it's it's it's, it's all free and, and and good and fine no look look behind the curtain there's this incredibly violent process going on and he sort of you know he talks about this circuit of value production this circuit of capital accumulation uh that that is so perverse um, and ravenous. So what happened, uh, you know, <laughs> just to be, again, very simplifying, in the, around about the, you know, the 1960s, early 1970s, were that some feminist Marxists were basically, as I see it, kind of walking to the back of that factory and sort of finding another curtain and saying, oh, look, there's an even more hidden abode. And that's the social factory, the family where the worker who makes the commodities is made, right? So social reproduction is the word for that extra part of the circuit of value production that was previously not really paid attention to in in original Marxism to to, to a sufficient extent, right? Where the, 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 the worker is made, who then makes the commodities that generates surplus value, right? So it's really important, and it still hasn't been entirely digested, I think, the implications of this. It's not to say that both places are exactly equal or equivalent, or that exactly the same kinds of laws govern both spaces. But I think it's foundational to understand that capitalism depends not only on what formal workers do in formal workplaces, but also what people do by way of work that we don't necessarily even see as work, um, because we invisibilize it and naturalize it as love in the private sphere. So social reproduction complexly and there is actually some debates and difficulties and misunderstandings I could probably bore your ear off with but you know (laughs) because because you know social reproduction refers to the things that are done to reproduce the worker as I said that's probably the the principal function that was identified and then it's also the things that are done to produce people who are not workers children and the elderly, disabled people, and from the point of view of capitalism, very wastefully and pointlessly, you know, people who will never do formal work, right? Mm. Um, so so that's sort of the, the labor of life in a sense, right? Like, uh, yeah, capital has no use for, that's also part of social reproduction because it's part of the social fabric um, that capitalism is in a sense actually trying to destroy, <laughs> but it also, it also depends on, it also simultaneously depends on. And then thirdly, it also means literal pregnancy, right? The literal, like, manufacture of new human animals, right? Um, And that third part has been so difficult to think through from a sort of labour perspective. Um, I'm I'm by no means the, the, the first person to have tried, but to sort of return a little bit to the anti-work element of my orientation, um, maybe I could just dwell for a second on what that what that might possibly mean because yeah. anti-work is almost as mind-blowing uh, <laughs> in a sense as yeah. as anti-family right what what could you possibly mean so what what it what it kind of means is and I would argue <laughs> along with people in the anti-work tra- tradition that goes back you know about 100 years is um, that it's a correct reading, <laughs> um, it's a correction, in a sense, of some productivist readings of Marx, where it is recognised that liberation from class society, from capitalism, does not lie in some kind of horizon where the worker is on top, right? And the, the distribution of power and authority and decision making is 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 reversed so that workers have a much better deal but ultimately the world still revolves around work rather than need or or, or free time <laughs> um and uh yeah it says basically 
point of Marxism was to abolish the worker qua worker as a worker. We 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 wish to self-abolish in that sense, right? That the idea that identity should no longer be thinkable. And what we do when we abolish work isn't automate things, although of course some people do think that. And maybe there is a role for some element of automation as part of an anti-work horizon. But actually, I think the primary sensibility and practice of anti-work is a sort of distributive one. You know, mm. what, what makes work work is often the way it is organized and the ends to which it is being expropriated, right? We might in fact end up, and I, I listed some sort of activities that are complexly work, you know, like wiping a kid's nose, right? <laughs> uh, if, if, if that if that stuff was distributed, accountability, responsibility for it was distributed and its ultimate value was not being sort of stolen from us uh, by an alien force, right? Then, then we would have lessened, we would have minimized the work valence of it. Um, maybe anti-work is a sort of perpetual horizon you know may maybe mm -hmm. maybe indeed you, you can't imagine a pure state uh, of, of post-work right but to, to 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 be oriented against work is to try as best one, one can and and maybe that's quite limited because of how much we are produced in this moment in history by the values of work by the sense that there's actually no other purpose for life than work right but we're trying as best we can to orient towards uh, an anti-productive horizon right so it, we don't praise things by calling them work we call them work in order to ameliorate the terrain of struggle um and that's that and that's a really difficult thing to understand because a lot of the time people heard the feminists in the early 70s that i just mentioned um, calling for wages for housework and basically understanding them to be saying ah you know housework is uh, really valuable and, and and good and it makes a valid and respectable contribution to the world and you wouldn't be able to function without us therefore pay us because it's it's good for those reasons <laughs> like you know it's it's complicated it's exactly the opposite they're sort of saying yeah, yeah, pay us, you know, absolutely. But guess what? Capitalism couldn't function if it did pay for all of the care work, all of the socially reproductive work that it currently receives for free. And by the way, <laughs> we want it to explode. We don't want, we're not saying that we think that the work we do as housewives, unpaid, unwaged housewives, and then, of course, sorry, sidebar, you know, <laughs> a, lo a lot a lot, of housework was always actually commodified uh, along along racial hierarchies. And that's a really important thing that, to be honest, the, the network did pay quite a lot of attention to, although there have been debates about the extent to which it was a little bit white dominated. Anyway, basically, they're saying this, this work reproduces the world. And you know what? That's actually not a good thing. <laughs> like, yeah. have you seen the world? You know, <laughs> that, 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 that I, I'm kind of being a little bit funny about it, but I can't stress enough how important that sensibility is, that when we seek to make visible the literal labor, the work of social reproduction and the making of life, life's labor, whatever you want to call it, we're not saying, hooray, it's all good. It's good stuff. It's good work. We should valorize it as work because it's it's good. No, it's just as good and bad as anything else. We should be politicizing it in order to, in part, decide what we want to do differently in that domain, how, you know, how we want to care for things, what things we want to produce, what relations we want to build and create. How could we do mothering, for example, in a gender inclusive and liberatory way? How could we make humans that are comrades and that are a threat to capitalism rather than simply a resource? And what do we not want to care for? What do we not want to reproduce? And how can we distribute the labor of all that reproduction such that it feels minimally like labor right yeah yeah 
And so to return, I guess, to a definition of the family, then could we think of it as, you know, the organizing principle that produces the maximum amount of work for some people uh, and a sort of maximal inefficient way to organize care, if you will. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic uh, way of, of thinking about it, for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. I mean, one thing I did want to go back to actually was, I can't remember the, the term you used, you described the family as sort of cunning or, or crafty or, or something. And it made me think of this idea of the, the family and how it kind of, it almost codifies its own fantasy at the point at which it potentially starts to break apart for a lot of people. So thinking about those comments about most people not really living in a nuclear family. But then for a lot of people, the ex at least for a lot of children, I suppose, the experience of divorce is quite an unpleasant one, mm -hmm. which is fascinating because in one sense, it's the family uh, changing or breaking apart in many ways because it's not, um, it doesn't work for people. And people say that this organization of my life it isn't working for me anymore. But in the unpleasantness of it breaking apart, it sort of codifies its own fam uh, fantasy as something that's desirable. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, it does. And I was wondering, how, how, are there any other ways that you sort of see the family as kind of doing that? And how, how are the different ways in which the family um, sort of almost paradoxically kind of codifies itself into our everyday life as something that's kind of indisposable or important? Yeah, I, I loved I loved that example you gave. Um, there's, um, I think it's quite it's quite a good example of the logic. It seems that our attachment to it is um, almost infinitely flexible. Um, it, it doesn't really matter how many pieces of evidence accrue <laughs> in, in our life about the sort of you know the the logical insufficiency of it it's it's often paradoxically the people who have been least well served in childhood for example by the family who double down on it ideologically to the greatest extent right I mean yeah sometimes you'll find that people you know experience some of the most horrific things that can that can really happen you know in childhood uh like uh you know parental you know incestuous childhood sexual abuse you know physical violence you know abandonment abuse starvation you know and the conclusion they draw is that family as they will reinvent it in their life often along quite sort of conventional lines will be will be different it becomes the impetus to invest you know hook line and sinker in family uh, almost as a, a way of healing the past right and I've I've been quite I've been quite astonished really by that. Like mm. I've seen I've seen people um, decide to read lists of biological relatives off a family tree at their child's wedding. A very strange kind of thing for someone who you know you happen to know is deeply damaged by the failure of family, you know, in their own life, and it becomes almost like a religion or something. In literature and culture. We have a tone of rueful exasperation <laughs> about the reality of the family, right? Almost, almost everywhere you look, and actually for a very, very long time, there's been a tone like you think of just I don't know J Jane Austen, right? The Bennets, whatever. You know, family is just oh, so exasperating. You know, this is the main tone. Um, that, that that we have about and it's a bourgeois image and it's a, a white image and it's a sort of propertyed image and it's usually you know cis heterosexual and yeah I grew up reading books called um, well there was it's a series one of the ones is by Gerald Durrell My Family and Other Animals and it's uh, I think it was made into a tv show recently it's a very British tone that one in particular just like Oh, you know the 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 worst, you know, um, and 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 um, a lot of humor can be derived from that. It's so much pleasurable hilarity, um, but I find it very fascinating that it almost seems to be one of the ways we shore up resistance against thinking 
thinking about collectively organizing the world differently you know it's like it it, it seems somehow to be a, a safety valve or something so that the the pleasure of being kind of seen <laughs> of having relatable content means that you you know you never really get around to contemplating hang on hang on <laughs> like does it have to be this way maybe we should also give a, a shout out to as you do in the book the the sort of genres of horror that very much deal with the family as the kind of central locus of sort of everything terrible <laughs> yeah yeah that's a really fascinating genre i find um horror cinema has long been understood as a pretty political space that attracts um that attracts queer people racialized people feminized people women partly because of the you know the heightened vulnerability to premature death faced by you know or like or, or sexual harassment or violence in the public space or in the private space you know that 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 so so there's already something about visualizations of horrible carnage gore uh, bodily dismemberment risk fear um that 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 potentially plays a role in helping certain populations manage their actually real experiences of of those those sorts of things in the actual world and then scholars feminists queer scholars have spent a lot of time thinking about you know the the latent feminism the ambivalent feminism of, of the horror genres treatment of uh domestic space you know kitchens are often very very violent spaces in horror films and that encrypts you know the violence of the division of labor that is present in the private nuclear household and then there's this thing that i always think when watching horror which is that so often we're sort of pretending we're being invited to suspend our disbelief um get on board almost like nationalistically chauvinistically with the the quest to survive of a uh, a homesteading family of the most traditional sort and you're and you're sort of pretending that you're going oh i hope they don't get burnt alive by all these <laughs> nasty figures you know invading uh, or 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 appearing out of the wallpaper or coming out of the basement or the attic or whatever but really you obviously want them <laughs> to be to, to you know to have to be burnt alive like and that's kind of what happens right the the monster is coming from inside the house um but you pretend that it's sort of coming from outside like the the true horror is really the situation that the people are in but they they manage to externalize it and pretend and band together as a result of of, of fantasizing it as a, a threat from the outside and that, you know to be honest that's a that's a whole trope you could link to all kinds of other things like uh you know like when americans started making never mind this is made parenthesis you know, no 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 it's great i could talk about film i could talk about film all day but the, the other thing i might just mention is that um once you start noticing the language of family in commodity culture um, in the service industry, in the points of contact of customer service, <laughs> airlines, banks, you you see it everywhere, just absolutely everywhere. And I think we should, you know, take it seriously enough to wonder why it is that that metaphor um, is used to convey trust and security. And uh yeah, that, you know, sometimes you see jokes. I see increasingly, in fact, <laughs> jokes um, where people say, oh, you know, my boss uh, said today, we're all family here. <laughs> and, and I said, yeah, we hate you. But but it's the, the sort of serious, you know, an important avenue of inquiry about that is the is actually the way that love functions under capitalism and invocations of love and allusions to love in order to drive down wages quite simply in order to um you know smooth over uh deregulation you know in order to kind of uh invisibilize certain kinds of work and to uh hyper exploit 
people who 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 might, if enlisted on the basis of love, lower their defenses, work longer hours for less pay, and so on and so forth. It works in the in the waged as well as the unwaged sphere. Is 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 what is what I'm saying. Um, and and Kathy Weeks is fantastic on that, uh, amongst other philosophers of anti-work um, on the on the ideologies of love and how they emerged um, under capitalism as um, labor management techniques. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I'm just thinking about. I'm te- I would quite like to ask you about red love, but I'm also thinking just from what you said there about the kind of utilization as love, yeah, as a sort of management of the workforce. Is that seems something that would be particular prescient in health and care in as much as there's a lot of people in those jobs that accept or well maybe accepts not the wrong word are forced to accept things and perhaps don't leave that kind of work because their sense of compassion or love that is then captured by the sort of waged system in which they have to do it you know I'm thinking about nurses in the UK at the minute feeling a very real conflict between the very important you know need to go on strike and the I guess the complex feelings that brings when you're you're the work that you do you know will have certain effects on people that you know will be detrimental to their health in the short term but certainly better long term it's a very rambling question and actually it's not really a question so feel free to respond to that or I can <laughs> think of a better question no I don't think it's uh I don't think that was rambling or it's 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 crucial it's everything the the whole whole question of what it might mean to go on strike when as I was laying out the labor in question is productive of people's lives of of people's bodies in an alive state (laughs) that's very elegant um (laughs) yeah it is is it has been yeah occupying you know militant anti-capitalists for rightly you know for decades and decades you know how there was a, there's a famous quote associated with the wages against housework moment where I believe it is Maria Rosa Dalla Costa potentially says there has never been a general strike right uh what she means is um roughly half the, the, the workers the ones we or, or you know increasingly less so hopefully but you know um, it's it's uneven in progress but at the time she was saying you know that the left is invisibilizing half the workers when 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 there is a general strike there are still you know all of these women um working to reproduce the strike um and what would it so so she, you know she's actually not simply saying right next time we're, we're gonna have a real general general strike she you know because that is how would that happen how, what how, you know maybe we need to figure out a way in which we can actually start withdrawing labor from spheres like medicine, mothering in a real way. I don't, we, we, you know, we're very far away from having, you know, the honest conversations about what that would entail. When I was at Manchester, there was a midwives strike on the road down from, from the building where I worked and it was it was fascinating because we had a little far left group that was in communication with some of the midwives and sort of thinking about these exact questions of what it means to withdraw labor when literal oh, babies, you know, capital yeah. B babies are at stake. And mm. they, they ended up kind of making very clear that although they were on strike, actually all the mothers and babies were going to be looked after, which was sort of yeah. basically like saying we're not on strike we're on strike but we're still doing the work you know what does that mean yeah Yeah. um and there's it's a really really important question it's difficult I'm not really saying anything particularly valuable here it's just you know I guess I'm reaffirming the 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 dark side of politics right if we're really going to get out of here we're going to have to at least face the fact that there is there is this dark side to care politics right necessarily we, you know, we care for some things, not for others. We, we, capitalism makes us eat so much shit in this regard. You just uh, referred to what nurses in the NHS are going through at the minute, where there's a sort of auto dehumanization that is structurally imposed, right? The people who you have to care for, you are literally unable to care for, you know, on the schedule that is imposed by, by, by the hospital, by the, by the bosses. And 
therefore you have, you know, something is going to give, something is going to break, and it's going to be you and or the people whose lives are basically in your, or whose well-being, whose, whose care is in your hands. Yeah, I'm just thinking about what you're saying there about that strike, because it's really interesting in a way, because one thing that comes to mind is the idea that you could work as a midwife and strike in the sense that you would do the work, but you wouldn't charge for it. And what's interesting, obviously, in the context of the NHS, where healthcare is free at the point of use, that wouldn't really work because people don't get charged anyway. But I wonder if that would actually be a very effective way to strike in the States, mm-hmm. were it not, I imagine, illegal, where yeah. you would continue to run a fully functional hospital without charging people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting comparison between the two healthcare systems about uh, maybe a kind of structural weakness. Yeah. Too, but, um, yeah, that's that's really interesting. There was um, there's been some militant medical sector activism in Philadelphia where I live. Currently, there was briefly an attempt to take over a hospital that was being closed, with a view to running it kind of along the lines you were describing, kind of you know, free and and for the people. It it didn't it didn't work out. Um, but but these are tactics and strategies that I think are circulating and, and 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 in people's imaginations. So I think maybe that could bring us on to maybe one of the kind of final points that we could talk about. And I guess how how would we distinguish between a, a kind of radical family abolitionism versus you know something like the NHS, for example, which is a kind of state structure that provides healthcare free at the point of use, sort of regardless of your quote unquote productive capacity. Um, how, how would something like that, that is kind of existing, if albeit being sort of eroded and privatized, how, could we consider that a kind of family abolitionist project? Is that a stretch or is that, are we talking about something quite different in, in a kind of concrete example of what it might look like, for example? Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I, I love the way you formulated that. There's, uh, yeah, my, my colleague and fellow family abolitionist theorist, um, well, I don't know why I said colleague, we're not, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm a freelance writer, literally, but um, <laughs> I, I wanted, I was going to say comrade, and then I realised that, you know, some people think that's, you know, unbelievably uh, earnest. Um, yeah. This is a I mean, pro-comrade podcast, I think. Good, I mean that. Good. <laughs> well, M.E. O'Brien, whose book yeah. about family abolition is coming out next year with Pluto, and, and I hope you you yeah. have her, her on as well um, to deepen the analysis. She uh, refers to the National Welfare Rights Organization in the States as, in, the, in the 80s as a family abolitionist organization. And so I think this is a, a, a way that I think it makes sense to think about institutions like the NHS to, to an extent. Um, mm. I... <laughs> I, I I'm a little bit leery to be quoted on that um, because of the sort of the ways in which the surveillance functions of the yeah. state, you know, reach through tendrils of the NHS, and you know, you have the border guard function of the of the NHS. It's not how it's intended initially, potentially, with social demo- democratic ideals about kind of you know uplifting the human really and I would say that any infrastructure of provision that meets people's needs outside of the private sphere has something to do with the path um, of abolition of the family I would also say that um, maybe I maybe I should have said this you know within the first few seconds of the podcast um, (laughs) I, I, I the bad or the good news depending on your perspective is that nothing family abolitionist could or I think should happen in the absence of massive, you know, insurgency overthrowing capitalism. If you somehow tried to delete or destroy the family without communist abundance proliferating uh, via, you know, serious scalable forms of mutual aid, um, I, you know, you would be creating a nightmare. So I, you know, the... There are sort of more and less negationist 
nuanced uh, ways you can frame family mm-hmm. abolition politics. You, you know, I think there is necessarily an element of negativity, mm-hmm. of, you know, of destroying the ideological and legal supremacy of mm-hmm. family, and thus also of work, you know, as a as an operating function for, for human life and human value. If you love the people in your family, if you love them, I would mm. argue you want them to have family abolition. <laughs> you want them to have, yeah. um, you know, a maximum amount of care, a maximum mm. amount of autonomy. You want to be able to discover what loving them outside of the insidious forms of coercion that that, that is the privatization of care via the family would look like. So there's necessarily going to be a fight against the sorts of religious and patriarchal naturalizations of family that people are quite invested in, let's be real. You know, but I also think there's a way in which you can say <laughs> that anything at all that starts to provide, let's say, therapy, healthcare, food, free transportation, uh, places to hang out, leisure, mm-hmm. sociality, intimacy in the in the in the common sphere mm-hmm. that that that's all that's that's all part of family abolition you know? yeah. which kind of means that you know most social movements really uh in fact that you know are, are, are part are part of that yeah, <laughs> whether they want to hear that or not i don't know but um yeah. there there's a yeah there's a sense in which i invite people to think about family abolition not as something which starts inside the little box with the front door and the roof <laughs> that we tend to draw when yeah. we think about what a family is yeah. uh, or, the, or the little stick figures with you know it's not in those relationships that we change that, that we start it's not it, it's not yeah that I'm not interested in that in fact I have written an almost embarrassing amount about my biological mother and what it was like when she died of cancer and the NHS looking after her um, and trying to join in with the comradeliness of the NHS nurses in a situation of organized scarcity while feeling quite alien in the mother-daughter relationship that was posited there. She, you know, and I've, I, I'm obviously interested in how uh, mothering has uh, evolved uh, in, let's say, um, militant settings as a form of collective collective and collaborative labor that uh that actually according to adrian rich's formulation destroys the patriarchal institution of motherhood which is a sort of privatizing function uh and so mothering against motherhood is uh you know very much you know a sort of dialectic that i that i think about all the time um but i would say (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that where we begin when we talk about abolition of the family concretely is just plain old social movement that we're familiar with, you know, but like, you know, riots, insurgencies, movements, people taking the streets and staying there and learning to educate their desire for more and more and more and more. That's where I've seen people's subjectivity change in a remarkably short period of time that's where i see people learning to you know experience their relationships with one another uh, in an abundant outward oriented rather than sort of possessive and inward oriented way that that's where people start to realize that they can provide things like food and care and you know substance use facilities harm reduction infrastructures you know, all sorts of things for for one another without relying on the sorts of expectation structure that is that is con- you know traditional kinship, right? It's it's also about thinking about the psychic arrangement of our expectations and our needs. There's a wonderful phrase from the the National Welfare Rights Organization, which is uh, "rich in needs," which is. I think such a great way of thinking about the sort of upward spiral of appetites that comes about when you do just begin, right? <laughs> like the task is to begin. People in the social democratic context of the UK started having 
meals provided for them for free in mass, you know, banqueting halls, dining halls by the state. And that originally was, you know, a sort of fairly, that was a state provision, but it had unexpected effects, right? So people were interviewed, you know, millions of people received these sorts of free meals during the war with flowers on the table, piano music, and so on. And the sort of the excess of it is that people started realizing they they wanted that and could provide that for one another outside, outside of the family. And and so when the state stopped doing it, people realized, well, actually, I'm this I'm a I'm a, a human being who's um, who has a, a, a right, <laughs> a need, if you like. Actually, the, the way they were saying it in the states in the 80s uh, in this radical struggle was was a need I need you know I need uh, more than the family and, and that that's the kind of sensibility that I'm hoping can catch on again Thank you for listening to this episode of Red Medicine and thank you to Sophie for that great conversation. You can find links to Sophie's books in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to stay up to date with Red Medicine, you might like to follow the podcast on Twitter at red underscore medicine underscore underscore or you could go to the website at www.redmedicine.xyz forward slash supplement to sign up for the newsletter, which includes a monthly roundup of the best writings on health, medicine, and politics. Thanks again for listening.